BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Double Elvis. Question. Has there ever been another geographical location to take over the musical landscape in the same way grunge did in the early 1990s? When Mudhoney's 1988 EP Super Fuzz Big Muff was reissued 20 years after its release in 2008, which is almost 20 years ago now, blogger, podcaster, and zine maker, and all-around grunge and underground punk expert Jay Hinman had this to say. My feeling, and I know I'm not alone in this one, is that for all the play and worldwide attention several Seattle bands got during the 1988 to 1992 period, at the end of the day, and even at the same time, there was Mudhoney, and there was everybody else. To me, you, and everyone else paying close attention to underground rock music during those years, Mudhoney still sounds like the undisputed kingpins of roaring, surging, fuzzed-out punk music. End quote. So why do these undisputed kingpins never get their due? And where do these loose threads and unresolved credits leave the Seattle scene now? It's one of those movements where the further away it gets, the larger it seems to loom. These days, grunge is the long shadow that emerging musicians in the Pacific Northwest have to shake off before they can do anything else. Where does the hype of a moment that echoes and echoes leave the creators living there now? It's hard to be the next anything when the story of a genre is so entrenched in your city. Mudhoney were the original stokers of the grunge fire, but what would their influence lead to? Post-grunge Seattle still has a story to tell and there is a sound to this town, as tangled up as it might be in the shadow of the past. In a cardboard town in Puget Sound, a crackerjack was jacking up the bottom of a frown. While a little wooden man and his tiny paper mate danced a crazy jigsaw puzzle and they laughed at all the hate. Harry Nilsson, Puget Sound. The band Mudhoney isn't even a household name. In fact, depending on who you ask, they're not even close. 11 albums, esteemed fans like Kurt Cobain, 
and preeminent status on Sub Pop, the flagship label of the Seattle Sound. And yet, aside from aficionados and deep listeners, the band remains largely unknown. Without Mud Honey, though, there's no grunge scene in Seattle. No fuse to light the fireworks that exploded into the most legendary music movement on the West Coast. No Nirvana, no Soundgarden, no Pearl Jam, no unrelenting decade of rock brilliance. Mudhoney took their first steps as an anti-establishment act exactly because of what came before them. Hair metal, glam rock, the unblinking, polished-to-nothing sheen of the 1980s, and the emptiness that lurked below the emptiness. Actually, maybe the Seattle sound started right before Mudhoney because before them there was Jimmy. Yes, that Jimmy. Jimi Hendrix, the only Jimmy. The unspeakable god of all that is holy among guitarists especially since his early untimely death affords him the generosity of being encased in amber at the golden age of 27, when everything is beautiful and nothing hurts, and that legendary guitar tone never had to pass through the 1980s. Now, naysayers might berate this line of thinking, insisting Jimmy was not grunge, but go listen to Stone Free again, and remember, the first act of any band that was heavy in the grunge scene was to deny that they were grunge. So maybe it works. Still, Jimmy did not come up in Seattle as a musician since his entitlement in the army took him to the south and he headed to Nashville once he was discharged. The direct linkage is hard to draw, but faint as it might be, was there literally something in the water up in Seattle that caused people to grow up ready to perform? Does the proximity to the longitudinal and latitudinal fuzz of his guitar germinate something yet unheard in the creative minds of Cobain, Cornell, or Mark Arm? Mudhoney started messing around together in the 1980s. All the original members were in their late 20s when Superfuzz came out. This is a year before 21-year-old Kurt Cobain and 22-year-old Chris Novoselic formed Nirvana. Eddie Vedder was 26 when he moved to Seattle to form Pearl Jam. That was two years later. Do these bands have enough in common to create a scene? Not in most places. But in Seattle, they're coming from a place that has given us quite a lot of music. Jimi Hendrix, Mother Love Bone, Mud Honey, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Heart, Audio Slave, Temple of the Dog, Screaming Trees, Melvin, Death Cab for Cutie, Band of Horses, Sunny Day Real Estate, The Postal Service, Fleet Fox, Noah Gunderson, Shabazz Palaces, Cave Singers, Thunderpuss, Bikini Kill, V Satisfaction, Taco Cat, The Sonics, Akimbo, Alan Stone, Brandy Carlisle, Car Seat Headrest, Chris Staple, Duffy Kagan, The Head in the Heart, Scott McCain, Presidents of the United States of America, The Posey, Nico Case, Modest Mouse, and Kenny G, just to name a few. At the heart of grunge is an inexplicable paradox. What in the world is a grunge? What, the, what is grunge? How did it come to be? Why are we still searching for it 30 years later? And the other side of the coin, why does everyone associated with it insist on balking that label? In order to understand how grunge emerged in the first place, it's important to know what was going on in Seattle as a whole. As a city, Seattle cycled through the boom and bust patterns that plagued a lot of port-focused economies. Volatility in shipping markets has existed for as long as shipping markets have, and this, along with other seasonal industries like logging and construction, meant that the bulk of workers in Seattle were regularly in and out of work. That kind of instability breeds a certain kind of attitude, and it helps people see through the facade of capitalism a lot easier. Industries like the railroad, Boeing, and the continued expansion of shipyards yielded terrible working conditions. 
so strikes were common in the early 1900s, fostering a spirit of rebellion that continued to grow in the city over the next several decades. Even in the early 20th century, Seattle is one of the most progressive and forward-thinking American cities in mindset and action. Miles away from any other big cities to the east and still a solid 200-mile trip from the smaller Portland to the south, Seattle was thoroughly isolated from the rest of America. That, combined with the influx of struggling workers, meant free time, cheap spaces, and fewer concerts from major acts. Some locals will complain they still get stiffed on national touring schedules, but decades ago, pre-internet, the seclusion was real. However, underground punk bands had less trouble touring up north, as they typically played to tiny rooms up and down the coast and traveled by car. That accounts for a lack of pop and mainstream influences and a heavy dose of punk influences in the area. With gloomy weather three-fourths of the year and not a lot else to do, disenfranchised youth in the 80s began to form bands, and most of these early groups knew and influenced each other. Some even shared or traded members. In a few of these bands, Mud Honey in particular began to hone in on a fuzzed-out, distorted, sardonic sound, and the backlash to the popularity of the movement was growing right alongside the sound itself. For a city that had been ignored for decades to suddenly be under the spotlight for clothing, sea flannel I guess, long hair, loud guitars, and an anti-establishment ethos made no sense to those purveying it. Really? Now the world cared? It was almost laughable. These bands were making fun of the mainstream, literally wailing against it, and still, this is what made the mainstream come calling. With the attention of the world came an insistence that all these Seattle bands were one thing, and that thing was grunge. If you've ever taken even an hour to listen to some of the most popular bands from the era, it's so clearly not the case. To this day, Reddit commenters and forum discussions regularly rack up hundreds of threads discussing just how little in common a lot of these groups have. From Nirvana and Soundgarden to Alice in Chains and Screaming Trees, the guitars might be there, but how each band uses them is entirely different. Others may argue their particular singing style, the Jarl, unites them more, but that's a rabbit trail for another time. With the support of local legendary label Sub Pop to help get these bands overseas, regularly releasing records and hosting shows in town, the little scene that could grew into something so sprawling that bands were moving from other places to try to get a piece of it. This kind of carpetbagging was another big part of why locals rejected the idea of being grunge themselves. And watching the success of bands who were riding the coattails of a local organic sound was another element spurring the backlash to grunge. Even as it began, the bands who were involved already wanted out. They wanted to live in a post-grunge world. And now that we do, Seattle is still thriving with a current-day underground music scene. And the best place to visit to get a sense of the past, present, and future? Well, we will make that our first stop at one of the best record stores in the entire country. Sound of Our Town is a podcast about the music that shaped the city you are touching down in. It is also about finding, hearing, and experiencing its best music happening right now. What sounds and places have shaped the city's culture, and what new sounds continue to define it. It's about getting together in a room to listen and why that matters so much right now. In each episode of Sound of Our Town, I'll introduce you to the real places and sonic stories echoing in a particular city so that your travel is enriched with music. 
and so that our time here is fostered by the connection live music provides to all of us. And so that maybe you can find that special someone on the road who's attracted to the same sounds you are. You never, you never know. I'm your host, Will Daly. I'm an independent DIY songwriter and touring artist. I've been doing this a while, and frankly, this show is also a reminder to myself how important live music is in our existence. And in this episode, we are going to Seattle, Washington. Okay, first stop, Easy Street Records and Cafe, well known for hosting free and all ages listening events at the shop. Consistently cited as one of the best record stores in the country, Easy Street has been open since 1988 and shows no signs of slowing down. If you are new to the city, it's an easy first stop to get the hang of the scene. Yes, they did open the same year Mud Honey was founded, which feels auspicious. And since then, the shop has evolved to sell its original wares of both new and used vinyl records, as well as CDs, DVDs, new books, magazines, t-shirts, and plenty of merch. But the trick is really that despite all the books and CDs, they sell not just new vinyl, but old stuff too. That's what gets the collectors and heads in the door. Because I feel like you can get a new vinyl at Dunkin' Donuts these days. All the way out in West Seattle, which you'll learn as you spend time in the city, is really freaking far away. The neighborhood would also give you a sense of the splendid isolation that a kid growing up in this city might feel, surrounded by trees, mountains, rain, the looming Puget Sound, a million miles from nowhere and living under a constant cloud. To hear a guitar screaming through the night was like a tiny glow that awakened something deep within. Grunge wasn't just a sonic movement, it was an emotional one. And what do emotional pilgrims need most? A mecca to gather and find one another, to share their love for the super unknown. Squint real hard at Easy Street, or if you're lucky, attend a free live show there, and you can still see the specters of other wanderers gathering in the wings. Still independently known, the store has hosted over 500 live sessions in its 30-odd years of existence, including the likes of Lou Reed, Elvis Costello, Patti Smith, Paul Westerberg, Robin, Jurassic 5, Damien Gerardo, The Head and the Heart, The Sonics, and Mud Honey, and so many more. They came because it was a rite of passage. It was the place that honored the spirit of real artists, whether they were grunge or not. It is now, for all intents and purposes, still that mecca. And if you come between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m., you can get a taste of the diner they opened up to serve all the kids, collectors, and wanderers who came their way. And there's plenty of music nerd jokes to be had in the names of each plate, so it's a treat any way you spin it. Once you've acquired a few old records and had your fill of a Hank Williams Western omelet, it's time to see some live music. The Showbox Room has been open in some shape or form since 1939. So even though it was acquired by AEG in 07, who are definitely the devil in a town like Seattle, the history of the venue still makes it beloved. At just over 1,100 capacity, it's one of the bigger venues in the city, but still has enough to make it feel like an intimate spot to see your favorite band. The oldest theater in Seattle is the Moore Theater, which was built in 1907, but the Showbox isn't that far behind. The building was constructed just a decade later in 1917. It wasn't officially opened as a venue until a few more decades went by when it was transformed into a streamlined modern performance venue in 1939. But it's racked up quite a following in the last 110 years or so. So much so that a few years ago, the whole city banded together to keep the thing open. Back in the day, early shows in the ballroom were focused on jazz bookings, including legends like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Sammy Davis Jr., and Muddy Waters. 
And later on down the line, grunge icons like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and yes, Mudhoney graced its stage. In the summer of 2018, Progress did as Progress does, and a developer announced their plans to tear down the theater and build a 44-story condo thing on the site. But the city reacted. A petition gained over 110,000 signatures and an official proposal to turn the showbox into a historical landmark was submitted and accepted. One line item that helped the building prove its merits, aside from the lengthy history and important architecture, the revelation of a secret backstage room that contains graffiti by none other than Neil Young, who the press deemed the godfather of grunge. If that isn't enough to stop a condo building, what is? Thankfully, this Art Deco relic was saved, despite its proximity to Pike Place Market and the unstoppable march of tourism-related development. It will be preserved for history's sake for the foreseeable future, so you are set for your trip. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, Feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Blue Moon Tavern is not a spot that a lot of locals will tell you to go to, even if you ask them. I mean, for the locals who don't regularly go there, they might not even see the spot in a positive light. Maybe that is what contributed to the tagline Seattle's most infamous dive bar, causing a ruckus since 1934. 
For this bar, grunge never died. Located in the U District, a.k.a. the University District, this spot was the preferred hang for one Theodore Redke, a noted American poet who moved to Seattle and taught at the University of Washington for 15 years. You can imagine the literati crew who accompanied a famous poet, winner of both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, to whatever watering hole he wanted to visit for a break from the throes of academia. Even though Redke died in the 60s, that air of artists and poets lingers around the bar. Dylan Thomas and Allen Ginsberg used to drain pints and pens here. Fair warning, this bar is about as divey as they come, but the no-cover live music can't be beat and will start up almost every night. The current owner, Tim Dooley, was a longtime bartender at the joint before he purchased it in 2022, so he knows what this place needs. There's also an art night where artists are encouraged to come through and bring their sketchbooks, and no shortage of welcoming vibes for folks of any background or stripe. Back in the 30s and 40s, this was one of the few bars in the area that would serve black servicemen during World War II, and its inclusive attitude continues to this day. In some ways, the Blue Moon feels the most indicative of what grunge was supposed to be about, going against the status quo of shiny, lacquered, commercialized culture that keeps us separated from each other. A wink and a nod at the mainstream, while providing a spot for counterculture art to flourish and grow, mainly based on connecting with one another first and foremost, and expressing real emotions. But if you want to sidetrack the expression of emotions and just get your face melted, there's plenty of places to get that in Seattle. The Crocodile is a mainstay in the Seattle music scene. The original 550 capacity room hosted Nirvana and Pearl Jam, giving it bona fide chops that will last another lifetime. More recently, they've booked guests like Billie Eilish, so it's still a desirable spot for a touring musician to get on stage. I maintain that the name, a truly excellent title for a music venue, continues to add to its popularity, but that's just conjecture, not a fact. Located in Belltown, which is just north of the touristy, high-trafficked area around Pike Place, this venue manages to be central without actually being in the thick of the most commercialized part of the city. Its location is definitely part of its continued popularity. Nirvana spoofed attendees one memorial night by booking a show as Pen Cap Chew and then getting up to play in all their Cobain front of glory. This was 1992 and the last time Nirvana ever played the Crocodile, but still a talked about show to this day. Mudhoney played here since, well, Mudhoney played just about everywhere around the city. They were Seattle's local band for a while there and even celebrated their 10th anniversary as a band at the venue in a 1997 show. About a decade later, the venue came under the ownership of a host of Seattle music royalty. Alice in Chains drummer, Sean Kinney, Alice in Chains manager, Susan Silver, Portugal the Man guitarist, Eric Houck, and Capitol Hill Block Party co-founder, Marcus Charles. More on that Block Party later. Under their stewardship, the venue thrived until the 2020 era, when they were forced to close down and move locations about three blocks away. Fortunately, that move ended up as a boon as more space in the building opened up, and the entire venue complex now boasts a signature 750-capacity state-of-the-art showroom, a smaller 300-capacity venue, as well as a 96-capacity sit-down theater, and a restaurant, and a 17-room hotel. For those of you who are truly enamored with the grunge scene, there is no hotel more relevant to your interests than Hotel Crocodile. So what was that Capitol Hill block party I mentioned? 
Well, it's pretty much the best party Seattle throws all year. Originally founded as a one-day festival by Jen Gepe in 1997, Marcus Charles and David Minor took the event over in 2000, adding a second day and a second stage. They charged eight bucks for a ticket and got sponsorships from local businesses like The Stranger, slowly reinventing the festival from a local five-band day show to a full-on three-day festival that attracts thousands of people every year. The block party is always held in July, which is probably the perfect time to line up your calendar for a visit to Seattle anyways. So if you were thinking of planning a trip this summer, lock up the dates and get the stars to align. You won't be surprised to learn that Mud Honey played the festival. Capitol Hill is basically the Williamsburg or the Silver Lake of Seattle. And for those who have not been, Capitol Hill Block Party is very much an in-town festival. The Gorge, one of the most beautiful, infamous, and rare venues in the world. Yes, it is a two-hour drive from Seattle. Yes, the city claims it anyway. Even Red Rocks is an hour outside of Denver. There is probably no music venue more famed on the West Coast, even if the Hollywood Bowl and Santa Barbara Bowl would both love to take that honor. They simply can't. Neither of them have a magnificent ravine plummeting into the depths behind the stage, Even a slight ocean view or the center of Hollywood Hills can't compete with that. Originally opened in 1968 with a capacity of just 3,000 people, the Gorge Amphitheater has since expanded to accommodate 19,000. True to its name, the venue offers sweeping views of the Columbia River and the Columbia Gorge Canyon, and those sites were in full view in the fall of 1993 when the double bill to surpass all double bills was presented, a joint Pearl Jam and Neil Young gig. For those who attended the show, there simply is nothing more Pacific Northwest than seeing Pearl Jam, Seattle's dedicated sons, play the gorge. Same goes for the Dave Matthews Band, who has turned the venue into their home base. But there's something to be said about the connection between Neil and Eddie, and the passing of the torch that seemed inevitable, between the rebellious counterculture classic rockers and the era of grunge, or whatever you want to call it. They were skipping straight over the 80s. It was the bands of the 90s who took it up again with art for art's sake in a refusal to be run into the ground by the plutocratic capitalistic technology that wanted to milk whatever dollars it could out of the music. Pearl Jam's prescient fight with Ticketmaster long before the rest of us, including Taylor Swift, got wise to it. Their decision to stop making music videos and not slot neatly into the MTV model. It'd be like Ed Sheeran not doing social media anymore. And Neil Young, who made an album just to connect with his disabled son, or his recent abandonment of Spotify, or his own failed attempt at creating an MP3 player that would play high-res music. R.I.P. Pono. The connection is the real value in the music, as it is in life. These decisions by the artist insisting something else is more important than marketing, that the way audiences consumed art actually mattered more than making money. Anyway... Probably none of this was obvious when the band shared the stage in Washington that night. Or maybe it was. Either way, if Pearl Jam ever plays the Gorge again, you should suck up the ticket fees and absolutely plan a trip around that. No questions asked. We haven't talked about Ballard yet, which is a real shame because it might just be the neighborhood where you end up spending the bulk of your time if you're a music lover. Ballard, the home of the beloved Tractor Tavern, a two-room venue where I like to make my stops, and underground favorites like the Damwells would hold court. 
And right across the street lies Connor Byrne Pub, the venue almost single-handedly responsible for the discovery of the head and the heart. I recommend both, but if you only have time to choose one, step through the double doors at Connor Byrne, another of the oldest bars in the city, and soak up the room where a vanguard of New Seattle found their way. Connecting and honing their craft at the regular open mic night at Connor Byrne led to the head and the heart eventually getting a record deal with Sub Pop and then receiving international acclaim from that debut album. If you've ever been to an open mic, then you know not all of them end that way. Good beer and whiskey might even be necessary to get through some of them. Luckily, Burns has got plenty of both of those on offer. If you want to get a real locals experience, then this pub is the spot. There's almost nothing more Seattle than the seaside neighborhood of Ballard. A tall mug of beer and an undiscovered guitarist trying to get the attention of the room. It might be the next icon, or it might just be a nobody that happens to be the somebody you need to hear. To prep for your trip to Seattle, there are actually countless docs out there on various bands and subsets of grunge, but one of the best is the hype documentary that came out in 1996. Because it was made when grunge was still grunging, this doc gives a very unique look at what was happening at the time and how the members of the still emerging scene actually felt about all of it. To name just a few appearances, Mark Arm of Mudhoney, Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam, Nils Bernstein of Sub Pop, Matt Cameron of Soundgarden, later Pearl Jam, and plenty of archival footage of Kurt Cobain. This two-hour film is worth taking in before a trip out to Seattle. If you do plan to go to a show at the Gorge, and you're a diehard Pearl Jam fan or Dave Matthews Band fan, then it might be worth it to watch Enormous, The Gorge Story. It's a brief one-hour documentary on the history of the venue, and it very prominently features Pearl Jam and Matthews. Not in a film-viewing mood? Log into your streaming service of choice and scroll back to the archives of Sub Pop's late 80s and early 90s releases. Work your way through some of the more seminal grunge releases to get into the PNW spirit and maybe even pick up a new favorite along the way. If Mud Honey taught us anything, it's that some of the best bands don't always rise to the top sometimes. They stay mired in local legend, only to be discovered by those who really put in the time to find the gold that is there. Mud Honey is and was the best representative of what came to be known as a Seattle sound, but never really got credit for paving the way. Same as it ever was, right? The first through the gates are met with the most resistance. They clear a path, and then others can ride on that path a little easier. The stories we tell ourselves with art overall can provide more influence on the popularity of the work than the work itself. Every true artist has a story, a point of view. When the mechanics of art commerce find an opportunity to market that story, it doesn't matter if it's grunge or K-pop. If those stories can be juiced up to sell more of something, then they will find a vein. Maybe grunge was just a story the world was ready to adopt. The first Gulf War, Reagan economics falling apart, Rodney King, the children of boomers wondering where the hell all that peace and love went. The real world is always waiting to rain down on us no matter how much hairspray we used in the decade prior. The music that comes out of Seattle sticks around. It's authentic. 
Now every day we see diatribes about artistic authenticity fly by us under our thumbs in adorable memes on IG and TikTok. Find your true self with gardening. Write for the sake of writing. Dance like nobody's watching. Sing for your soul. Paint only what you can see. And on and on. But that shit is easy. The biggest band in the world telling MTV they are no longer doing videos because the music is more important is true inspiration and example setting. What all the artists out of Seattle from Jimmy to Brandy tend to extol is that this life is better when you share your true vision. The distorted pop masterpieces of Cobain's gems, Vedder's sincere howl, Cornell's banshee wail over grooving 7-8 bars. These were artists that didn't create a brand. They put their whole selves on the line. Some paid for it with everything while breaking down the artifice of an industry that was just starting to swallow itself whole. Their resistance to the behaviors of the industry was wildly prescient, because that version of the music business has indeed devoured itself whole, not before birthing the next version, which has grown up consisting of algorithms, bullshit playlists, and AI, that once again rob us of our connection. So we find ourselves currently begging a new class of artists to rage and wail against it. And one more thing. Guess you can't do an episode about Seattle with the focus being grunge music and not mention all those that are no longer with us. For many bearing your soul and then others being employed by that exposure that you are sharing with the world can be a very, very risky proposition. Add to the fact that there's now millions of people out there who have a connection to you, who think they know you. They've been sold a story a genre, a flannel. Two situations that can leave you feeling even more alone than you started. And then never mind the fact that sometimes a dead artist is worth more. Everyone gets to tell your story again and make another dollar. Only now you have no voice in the matter. And we see this all the time. Elvis, in a state that will forever make millions. Prince, no one wanted to tell him to stop working, take care of his body and his mind. Now Paisley Park is worth a lot more than when he was alive. Michael Jackson, Tom Petty, the list goes on. And then we get to encase them in these futures they don't get to have and overanalyze albums that didn't get to happen. And if they did, wouldn't have happened in the way you or I dreamed. That's why we love those artists. Remember, Jimmy didn't pass through the 80s. Do you love every 60s and 70s act that passed through the 80s? Kurt Cobain didn't live through Britney and Christina. He might have changed his whole sound once he heard that. You don't know. But yet we all pretend we do. And I don't know why. But maybe Rolling Stone, instead of ranking the 100 greatest records of all time, could make a list of ways that we could all keep an eye on each other better. Celebrate the times we've asked for help and received it and are here today because of it. Make that list next. Well, we did it. Episode 9. Season 2. That was Seattle. Thank you to everyone who's followed the show. And an extra special thanks to those who have reviewed it. That is how we even got to Seattle. Is your word of mouth, your effort with the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, keep it coming. Thank you for all the nice messages about it. 
Let me know where you want us to go next. DM me on just wherever, wherever you feel comfortable in social media. I'll find it one day. <laughs> so uh, you can hit me up on Instagram, Will Daily Official. Just spell daily, D-A-I-L-E-Y. And we'll talk. Sound of Our Town is a production of Double Elvis and iHeartRadio. You can hit up Double Elvis on IG at Double Elvis and Twitter at Double Elvis FM. The show is executively produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis. Production assistance by Matt Bowden, especially when my computer crashed on this one while recording. The show is created, written, hosted, and scored by me, Will Daly. This is me playing all the music. You can hear that wherever you like to hear music. Or you can go to willdaily.com and get your own vinyl. This episode's head writer, Caitlin White. All right, well, I'm off to uh, the next town. Find out what that is soon. Thank you for your ears, and be good to each other out there. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.